You are now investigating the invisible. We. And AI. Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Investigating the Invisible. I'm Peju Oshisanya. I am a clinical researcher and my passion is data diversity. I advocate for better inclusion of diverse populations in biomedical research. And I am Kevin Butler. I'm founder and CEO of Centigy, an advisory firm that helps HR technology buyers make faster, better decisions and we work closely with HR tech vendors, helping them to improve their offering. We're both members of We and AI, a non-governmental organization on a mission to raise awareness about artificial intelligence in the UK. Together, we've started this podcast to ask questions about AI, because it's only when we start asking questions that we can understand how AI is shaping the world for all of us. This is episode number one in our series, and we're going to be focusing on the issue of bias. The problem of bias in AI has come up again and again in the news recently. Think about the GCSE grading scandal, for example. And it's a huge recurring theme across all the episodes that come after this, from healthcare to education, jobs and the government. Uh, We always seem to come back to bias. So We need to start our journey by getting to grips with it. Luckily, we won't be doing it alone. Today, we'll be speaking to two experts to shed light on one question. What makes AI biased? Our first guest is Angela Saini. Angela is an independent British science journalist and author. She's probably best known for her documentaries on the BBC and her two books on the history of science, including her most recent, which is called Superior, the return of race science. I can't wait to see what she says. You know, when I was at university, I learned to code from a very young age. It's quite fashionable now to teach kids to code, but back then nobody bothered because we didn't think it was necessary. It was like the early days of the internet. And I think I only got my first phone when I was 18 or 19. Um, And... Um, One thing you learn very quickly is that code is written by human beings, of course, and the data that goes into into an algorithm or a system is um, supplied by human beings as well. It comes from society. Um, What artificial intelligence is, is basically a what is it's a type of machine learning. So it's basically getting um, computers to think like human beings as much as possible and I should say even though we use the phrase artificial intelligence a lot we don't have artificial intelligence in the ways that we think there is no machine out there that thinks anywhere near as in as sophisticated or careful a way as humans think Um, for that you need these really complex neural nets. You need really complex technology to be able to do that. And possibly we'll never have that. Possibly we'll never be able to design a machine that can think the way that we do. So when we say intelligence, we're not talking about human intelligence in the way that we use it, but it's a type of, If I'm, I don't think intelligence is perhaps even the right word, but it's a type of um, system that allows a computer to make, to improve itself and learn from 
the world around it and from the data that it's given and make inferences based on the data that it's given for itself without anyone having to tell it um, again and again what to do. Um, and that is artificial intelligence. What we have now in terms of AI, I think is very still very basic um, and rudimentary and usually one dimensional. So you will have programs that can do one thing there aren't very many programs that can do a multitude of things. I don't yeah, they think. typically seem to be able to do one thing very well and it gets better at doing that task the more times it does that task. Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of the stage that we're at. Okay, yeah, interesting. Um, what's your favorite AI myth? Um, I think my favorite AI myth is this idea that artificial intelligence is something like human intelligence. And I think that's very, I mean, we... I love science fiction. You know, I, I grew up on science fiction. I've just been in lockdown. Everyone has their favorite box sets, but I've been rewatching Star Trek The Next Generation. And when you see Data in on the Enterprise, you see this being who, to all it, intents and purposes, behaves exactly like a human being bar emotion. So he has everything except emotion. Well, we don't have anything like that now. You know, that is... I think what some people imagine artificial intelligence to be like, even now in the real world, well, we don't have anything even coming close to that now. So I think artificial intelligence is perhaps a wrong phrase to be using for what we what we actually have. And that's probably the biggest myth. Yeah, I, I've, I've been going through the box sets of, of Next Gen as well. And now I'm, I've finished that and I'm <laughs> on uh, Deep Space Nine. So Me too. I just, start, I just got to the last episode. And I'm on to Deep Space Nine as well now. Which is, uh, and it's got, an, it's got an Irish guy in it. So uh, that that's, it picks another <laughs> box for me. Yeah, yeah. Right. So what we're going to hope to uh, kind of tackle on, on this episode now is, you know, the differences between bias and prejudice, um, you know, what, you know, who decides what's good and bad bias? How can we be more aware of our own unconscious and conscious biases and prejudices, right? What's the difference between them? So, um, so Angela, what, what would you say is the difference between bias and prejudice? Oh, that's a really hard one. I'm not a psychologist. Um, and I would say here that if you are interested in this from a psychology perspective, then I would really recommend the book Biased by Jennifer Eberhardt, who's a Stanford psychologist, um, a black scholar who herself, I think when she was a graduate student at Harvard, suffered police brutality, which just goes to show, you know, you can be as educated or as wealthy as you like in some places, it makes no difference. Um, but now she works with American police forces tackling um, unconscious bias and uh, entrenched institutional racism um, and the way that she describes um, bias is something that exists in every single one of us um, because of the societies that we live in that you know it's something even from a very young age even children can pick up certain cues that shape the way they think about the world in ways that they don't realize we all have you know we are cultural creatures our brains are very plastic and um, we're deeply, viscerally, biologically shaped by the societies and the cultures that we're in. And um, everything around us, these cultures are man-made. So whatever ways of thinking there are in the world around you, they will shape your, shape the way that you forever think about the world. And for me, that is probably bias, this, I, this kind of leaning towards certain ways of thinking because of the way that you've you've raised and everything you've been exposed to prejudice is i think darker than that it's kind of the 
hatred or dislike of another group of people um, based on some kind of stereotype or prejudice, um, so, some kind of uh, deep-rooted negative stereotype about that group of people. Um, so bias, I think, is something that we all have. Prejudice, I think, is something that uh, perhaps we also have as well, but that is easier to recognize, perhaps. So, so you'd say that maybe the difference is there that, that prejudice is a belief that a person would have about a group of, of, of people as opposed to bias, which, is, which could be anything, but not necessarily yeah. a group of people. And we all have biases. For example, we have biases towards our family and friends. We prefer the company of our family and friends. That's a type of bias, isn't it? It's not a prejudice. It, does, it doesn't mean that we hate other people because we prefer our family and friends. So I think prejudice is kind of a deeper, deeper darker thing than, than bias. So, so prejudice, well, prejudice is bad, but not all biases are bad. Um, I think, I don't know if bias isn't bad, but I do think it's inevitable. Um, just because you can't grow up in a culture with its own values and its own systems of doing thing and, and things and not be biased. So, for example, one of the big biases that we see in Western democracies is in favour of capitalism. We all buy into this system of capitalism. That is a bias in itself, this idea that this is a good way of living and it's, a, it's how societies should work. Well, not everyone in the world shares that point of view and that's a bias in itself it's not you know it, whether you think it's good or bad really depends on your point of view interesting interesting all right to the best of your knowledge is there any scientific reasons why humans are you know, biased or prejudiced oh this is something that exercises psychologists so much um and i do read a lot about this idea that are we born to favor certain groups of people over others? Are we born to favor, for example, our own racial group? I'm not entirely convinced of the evidence for that because what you do see is that, of course, we have um, more positive feelings and greater attachments to our families and people who look like our family. But for instance, if you are a white child adopted into a black family from birth and, you, and what you see most of the time are... Um, your black family's faces, then you will have a positive association then with blackness. Um, so these studies that seem to show that even young babies um, have an in-group racial preference, I think that's not about racial preference, that's about who you're used to seeing. We are all, you know, slightly more uh, warm towards the people that we're used to seeing and they can, that can be anyone. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone who looks like you. So familiarity then, is, I think is what you're saying, uh, will influence well perhaps is it a survival thing is it is it a deep-rooted survival that we only really trust what we we understand and don't fear and, and recognize yeah and I think that's true at a family level because of course a baby would need to recognize their parents to know the danger from a stranger you know um, to form an attachment with their with kin that's probably an important thing um, but that's not to say it has to be biological because that you know we know from adopted parents that you can form those very strong attachments from a very young age with people who aren't related to you so it's not about someone like i said who necessarily looks like you it's just about the people who you know are taking care of you that they're the ones that you form a bond with um i'm not sure that prejudice itself is inevitable um 
like more broader prejudice against other people because when you look through history if there's one thing that we're learning from kind of anthropological and genetic evidence now it's that humans throughout history have moved around a lot and mixed a lot we are the mo one of the most homogeneous species on the planet even though we're spread all over the world we are more genetically similar than any other primate. So chimpanzees show more genetic diversity than humans. And what that shows is that we have mixed a lot. We've intermarried, we've had children together. We even know now that modern humans, Homo sapiens, bred with Neanderthals and Denisovans, so other human species. So we are not that discriminating as we might imagine, because even with other species, we were willing to mate. So um, I think that goes to show that um, that love conquers all. Maybe <laughs> you know, that we 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 tend we are also a cooperative species. You know, our survival also depends on cooperation and staying social. So this kind of idea that we are born to hate each other, I just don't think that's the case because humans would not have built these complex silver lives. We wouldn't have survived, really, if we weren't cooperative and social and loving towards each other. I think I think hate, hate, hate is a strong word when we're, we're looking at like bias. I think that some of the more damaging biases are the, are the kind of the milder ones that is like left unchecked, but it, it happens a lot, uh, you know, and so that, that, these are the kind of biases that creep into AI development. That was what we're finding. That's what we're trying to really kind of keep keep an eye out for. So maybe maybe on, you know, bias, who who decides, you know, what's a good bias, what's a bad bias, who who, who should just make these decisions? Well, the weird thing is, um every society as society changes, it has its own values. Every different society has its own values. And um they change they have to change generation by generation. So for example, if we look at Alan Turing in his lifetime and in decades after his lifetime he wasn't celebrated he wasn't remembered because he was gay and society didn't accept that and only now that society has moved on and it it is welcoming and warm towards uh, homosexuality and gender diversity and all of this now we celebrate alan turing now we name lecture theaters after him and institutions after him and we um, and if AI was written 50 years ago, it would be biased against homosexuality. It would be homophobic. AI written now wouldn't be. And there, we have to accept that there are prejudices now, biases that society holds that are widespread biases possibly, that 50 years from now we won't hold and programs will have to be rewritten to take account of those things. So society's values always change. And there is no ultimate arbiter. There's no dream imaginary dream world in which no bias exists because we're not even aware of the biases that future generations will judge us for now. For example, I think it's perfectly possible that especially as we have, um, and I'm not a vegetarian here, so I have to say, but I think it's perfectly possible that future generations will judge us for eating meat and will look really negatively at generations who bred animals in the way that we do and farm in the way that we do we might may find that very cruel so you know we just don't know how things will change in the future and the sad thing is we have to work with what we have we have to work with society's values as they are now we can't imagine a world beyond them. so okay so we we need to accept that 
right perhaps we we do have these unconscious biases now perhaps the way of the way we, we work and live now will be judged in the future um so so what do we do do we do we not develop? Do we not use AI knowing that it's imperfect? Uh, you know, do we continue to develop until it's perfect? Who decides when it's perfect? Uh, do we stop progress? <laughs> well, I think the point is that there is no perfect because whatever you, whatever society thinks of as perfect is socially conditioned and, and culturally mediated. There is no one perfect way of imagining how society should be or could be. Um, and that's a problem. We have to kind of accept that. What what um, AI systems do is really reflect the world that we live in back at us and in some ways amplify the prejudices and the biases of the world that we live in because of the way that these systems are designed. Of course, what computers do when they're um, dealing with data, in in this sense, they are value neutral. They don't care if society is prejudiced. They won't kind of take it take that into account because for them this is just data so they will take a bias that exists in society and they will amplify it because if so for example you have a set of data that suggests that women uh, are outnumbered by men in te the tech industry the AI will treat that as a basic fact that men there are more men in the tech industry men are better at doing these jobs men are more likely to do these jobs so every time they see a job advertised for for a tech job advertised they will send it to a man because as far as the ai is concerned it looks that's a sensible thing to do based on the data that they're getting they don't see what we see which is the historic context around why those figures look the way they do and why that data looks the way it does um and that's why ai in some ways can um be much worse than we are in terms of um, how it how it behaves uh, with regards to the world. It doesn't have that moral check. If yes, yeah, so I'd agree. If if it's only learning on what we did in the past, and that's the only data set that it's got, it's it's going to have inherent bias. There's no doubt about that. Um, and we've seen certainly from from a recruiting perspective, this has happened, and obviously the the famous. Um, Amazon uh, story, but uh, they've they've removed the vast majority of, of HR recruitment uh, tools now have removed gender from it, so it, it doesn't learn on gender anymore. Um, or if it was an all boys school or an all girls school, that that doesn't, doesn't take that into consideration. But yeah, yeah, but the problem here is that um, if we take gender out of consideration, and I agree it shouldn't be there in AI systems. I don't think we should have variables like that. But a human being assessing an applicant will be able to take into account, for instance, that if someone lived in a poor inner city area and went to a good university as a result of that, that they will have overcome huge obstacles to get there, that it would have been much tougher for them to make that journey and maybe there will be a better employee as a result. How is AI supposed to understand that? How are they supposed to get to that fine-grained detail about who a person really is? Yeah, and, and, and that's why we're finding that it, AI is more helping to augment human ability, uh, especially in the HR world. You, you, it, it, it almost amplifies the importance of you, the human step to say, I'll make this final judgment call now because there's no way that AI could, could take that into consideration. Yeah, All right. yeah. Uh, what would you say is the likelihood of AI developers transferring their biases and prejudices into their work? 
Well, I think that's also inevitable. Like I said, when I was young um, and I learned to code, you quickly realize that code is written by human beings and um, you have to define every single step that a computer program takes. Now, those steps are going to be decided by your personal, uh, is, is based on your personal decision making. And whatever that is, whatever you think is salient, you're going to put into that program. So, of course, the the background of the researcher matters, what the, their understanding of the world matters then. And this is why it's so important to have representation in the tech industry and in coding and development, because if you just have a narrow set subset of people deciding how programs are written and writing those programs, then you're just going to, you're just going to replicate all their biases again and again. No one's ever going to challenge it. I see that even, I mean, I don't write code now, but I do work with a lot of organizations. I sit on boards and what I see sometimes is that it, say I'm the only ethnic minority in the room or one of few ethnic minorities in the room. Sometimes there'll be decisions made and thinking that goes on, which to me just seems ridiculous and bizarre, and, but they won't notice until it's pointed out. And this is the problem. We have blind spots when when we haven't experienced certain forms of discrimination or certain, we haven't had certain life experiences. And um, that is why, you know, I'm a huge advocate for representation in all industries everywhere. Um, not because different people have innate different talents, but because we all have different life experiences. So having more um, diversity uh, within development is going to help in, in that respect. Yeah. It'll remove biases. Well, I think it will help. I don't think it will remove biases, but I think it will help. Yeah. Um, how can we test for our own unconscious or conscious biases? Is there a way? How can we do this? Well, there are implicit bias tests that you can take online. Um, and I've taken them myself and I am biased. <laughs> Just so you know, I think I, I don't think I've ever met anyone who was who has taken one of those tests and not <laughs> shown themselves to be biased in some small way. Um, but um, the problem with those tests, I think, is that they don't explain to you why, where and why your biases are there in the first place, where they come from. And I think that has been a large part of my work is in the process of writing about the history of gender and race and how they've been constructed. These are constructed categories, of course. Um, you can start to pick apart where our ideas come from. And I think that's a very important part of the step. It's not enough to just recognize that you are biased, which we all are. But we have to recognize where society's ideas about these categories came from and also explore the ways in which other societies think very differently. So I'm writing a book now on the history of patriarchy. And um, what you see is that, of course, gender relations in the world vary hugely um, through space, but also through time. So in different parts of the world, there are some societies in which traditionally there has been an acceptance that there are not two genders that there are three genders or multiple genders. And that is something that, for example, in Western European society, they're only just starting to accept. Science, Western science was predicated on this idea that there could only be a binary. There's no way of thinking beyond that, that anything else was transgressive. And in other cultures, that just isn't the case. So I think it helps to understand, to have a, a um, historical long view on this and then you can start to understand where your society's values came from which and then informed your own what's what does the you know everyday person on the street need to be aware of when it comes to their own biases 
Um, I think that challenging your own biases is a lifelong process. Um, and I'm saying that as someone who's still in the process of challenging her own. <laughs> I've been doing it for a very long time and I still... Uh, I mean, one of the things that I try and do is every time I meet a new person or I have an encounter with someone, I try not to bring my stereotypes based on their sex or race or cultural background or anything to that table um, to just get to know that person for who they are and, you know, for the, whatever interests they have and everything. And that is that might sound quite simple. It's actually more difficult than you think because when often when you meet someone, what the questions like one of the questions I often get asked is, you know, where are you from? Do you have Indian ancestry? I want you know, and then already you're forming connections between your experience or what you think that you know about India and what you think you know about this person. Well, you know, it doesn't really tell you very much because everyone, every single person is different, and the challenge is then asking different questions. You know, what music are you interested in? What do you like to read? Uh, have you been on holiday? Where did you go? What, you know, what do you like? And um, it's difficult sometimes to set aside that kind of set of group think ideas that you have about people, surprisingly more than you than, than you think. Interesting. I, I find that I live in London and uh, it's becoming more impolite to talk about where somebody's from now. You you you, you never <laughs> yeah. say, "Why from Ireland?" I'm Irish, so everybody wants to say something about Ireland. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, well, there are stereotypes about Irish people, of course. I'm sure you've encountered that you don't, you know, that. Yeah. <laughs> ridiculous, really, because I'm sure not every Irish person lives up to those it's stereotypes and what you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, of course. So what you're saying is you'll get to know about the people and ask them questions about themselves rather than who they are, where they're from. OK. And, and, and the second part of this question is think, think of it. You're, you're an AI developer. OK. Um, so what kind of what do you need to be aware of from, you know, from a bias perspective? What do you need to do in order to remove as much bias from you, perhaps from your team, and your organization? Who's 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 going to be the champion there? For, for removing bias? I think it's a role that everybody has to play. Um, it, Like I said, bias is something that we're not aware of. Um, w there are social values in, a, in the time that we live in that mean that even people from very diverse backgrounds working in the same place can share a very same very similar world view so what do you do about that you can't really do much about it um, and I see that myself so for example um, in medical research there is a huge tendency to essentialize about racial groups inappropriately to talk about racial groups as though they are biologically different in ways that they're not and I see that being done not just by white doctors, by Asian doctors, by black doctors, by everybody, because of the system that they're trained in and the, and the guidelines that they use and the way that they've been trained to think about human difference. So um, it's not just a matter. This is why I don't think diversity itself is a is the solution. It's about how we're trained and the systems that we're trained in. And I think that goes right back to the beginning that... Um, in engineering school, for instance, where you know a lot of coders and developers come go through, um, we are not taught about history. I learned practically nothing about history in my four years at engineering school, and I believe that everybody, um, whether you're a science student, engineering student, medical student, you, sh you should learn for every concept you learn. You should learn um, how it was developed, why it was developed, who developed it, 
the context, the historical context of that. Because some of these ideas that we still use now in statistics, in medicine, in various areas of our life, in mathematics even, have their roots in some quite uh, difficult and problematic um, beliefs. So there are many statistical concepts. In fact, the field of statistics itself was born out of eugenics. This belief that we could perfect human beings and the reason that so many early statisticians were eugenicists was because they were developing statistics in order to understand how human variation worked and how to map it. Um, and we have to understand that so that we don't fall into those same mistakes again. A lot of our ideas now about human perfection, for instance, or what it means to be a, be a, uh, a an ideal human being are informed by those early eugenic beliefs. For instance, in genetic engineering, which is a field that's moving quite quickly these days, when people talk about perfecting humans, very often they will talk about height or intelligence or strength or eye colour or hair colour or things like this. Very rarely will they talk about we want to develop good human beings. We want to improve their kindness or cooperation or quality, other qualities. Intelligence is also a psychological trait, psychological quality. If we, can, if we could, theoretically, although I don't think it's possible, improve intelligence, well, why can we not improve goodness or these other positive qualities that we value in society? And that's because we think in terms of productivity. We want to improve the productivity of this individual, which again comes back to this idea, this kind of capitalist idea of what humans are for in a society. We're for improving productivity and contributing to society. Well, those are social and cultural political values. They're not necessarily shared values that all humans have around the world. Um, you know, there are many societies in which they don't value productivity. They value cooperation and kindness and um, other other things. Yeah. Um, so we have to understand that every idea that we have, every concept that we have, every way that we use science and technology is informed by, by social, political and cultural beliefs. So um, on the um, Angela interview, I liked the fact that, you know, she described bias from the human perspective, you know, how our societal norms and cultural norms actually inform how we uh, bring bias into our everyday and in essence, you know, coming into the work and, and AI as we see it now. I thought she made a very uh, good point uh, around the fact that um, our biases are not always known and clear to us. You know, we look back at generations before us and we point at things that they could have done better or differently. And certainly we will be judged <laughs> by the generation, you know, behind us, uh, definitely. Um, and, and that really um, is an important point for me because we should be really thinking about what is normal to us that could be uh, a form of bias that we are inbuilding into AI now. Yeah, it, it is interesting when you think about, you know, what will we be judged for in the future? Um, yeah. You know, or should we? You know, should you be judging the past based on, on contemporary values? Um, yes. you know, I think that's what we do right now. 
Uh, and I, I think that's right because there's a lot of house cleaning required for humanity. But it'd be interesting to see what happens in the future on that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was great. It was great to, to, to chat with Angela. Um, I loved her, her analogy or her myth about AI, which was about data from, from Star Trek, the character from Star Trek. Um, you know, and, and you know, yeah. that's what we think AI is, but we're a long way away from that reality. Um, you know, and for, for those who, who don't know the show, Data was this android character who, who um, you know, had all the sort of thinking capacity of a human, except uh, he couldn't feel emotion. And it's the one thing that he really wanted. And he tried to understand humans so that he could be a better replica of, of a human to become more human himself. Um, and on the show, we, we got to learn from his uh, journey on what it means to be human. And I think we're finding that on, on these episodes as well uh, with, with the uh, the guests that yeah. we've had on. What does it mean to be human before we know what, how, to, how to make yes, AI? Yes, and, and certainly the fact that, you know, um, AI certainly cannot replace humans is nowhere near uh, being able to do what we do as humans. And whilst it can do certain things very well, um, I think its benefit so far is enabling us to be better at what we do instead of replacing us outright at the moment. Absolutely, absolutely. And, and in the interview, what I really wanted to try and get from, from um, Angela was to how to um, you know, reduce prejudices and bad bias, should we say, right, in, in AI development or technology development. Uh, I think Angela touched on that, you know, representation in the tech industry is very, very important. There's a lot of minorities that are under-rep- underrepresented in, the, in, in development. So we do need more diverse people to build to build these algorithms. Yes. Yeah, and and the the important bit is is the fact that we have different lived experiences, and not uh, one single uh, you know person or group can truly reflect that in any organization. So it is very important to have that diversity of thoughts. Uh, cognitive diversity within your organization to ensure that you are not uh, unintentionally being too biased towards a certain group. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now it's time to hear from our next guest, Dr. Robert Elliott Smith. Rob has a very distinguished CV. He's uh, the CTO of Mirza, a company that's developing technology to help close the gender pay gap. Uh, he's also a senior fellow of the computer science faculty at University College London. And excitingly, he's just published a book. Uh, it's called Rage Inside the Machine, The Prejudice of Algorithms and How to Stop the Internet Making Bigots of Us All. And I know that we're all big fans of that book. I've read it and, uh, you know, everyone involved in, in the, the podcast and we and I absolutely love this book. Um, so we're very, very happy to have him on the show. Yeah, it was amazing to speak to Rob and I am really excited to share the interview with you. Artificial intelligence is a troubling set of words. I don't really like the term particularly well. Uh, and uh, the reason is it's two words that have problematic uh, uh, problems. One is artificial and, and my analogy will be this, is, is there's two meanings to the word artificial. There's um, Artificial light. Artificial light is light. It's light made by a man-made thing. And then there's artificial flowers. Artificial flowers are not flowers. They're an imitation of flowers. 
So we've got these two ambiguous meanings of that word. The second word, intelligence, is a word that has a problematic history uh, because the, the quantification of intelligence, the, the trying, trying to frame intelligence as a scientific concept, has been fraught with problems and in particular has been very highly associated with traditional uh, intolerances, prejudices, biases, um, largely against the, the socially disadvantaged. Uh, so we've got these two problematic words combined together. Uh, so I don't have, uh, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the meaning of artificial intelligence from a technologist's point of view has shifted. Uh, it's basically whatever we're using to say we can uh, imitate human intelligence or replace human intelligence uh, at the moment. Uh, and, and in fact, it's, it's become a word that's charged a lot with a lot of hype and is oftentimes just a marketing term. Uh, I, there's a word used by Neil Stevenson in his uh, incredibly good uh, book, uh, The Diamond Age. Uh, he, he calls, in the science fiction novel where artificial intelligence, in quotes, is ubiquitous, it's not called artificial intelligence, it's called pseudo-intelligence. And I think that's a much better term because it, it more accurately conveys what uh, artificial intelligence usually is. And it's an imitation. It's more like artificial flowers than artificial light. It's an imitation of intelligence that uh, carries none of the uh, massive complexities and subtleties that human intelligence actually has. So with bias and the excitement around artificial intelligence, as you've already alluded to uh, this morning, there's a significant amount of hype with AI and especially around its potential the promise it holds and what can be achieved. And my sense is that there is this desperation and urgency in us as human humans to outsource a lot of our own functionality and what's make, what makes us special uh, to, to AI systems uh, to, to, to start, you know, looking into the future, projecting and all of those stuff. And it is therefore no surprise that as we are embarking on the journey with AI, it's starting to reflect our society back to us. Hence why the topic of bias is hot, you know, regardless of which industry or vertical you are looking at artificial intelligence, bias is, is a big problem. So from your perspective, what is bias and is it always a bad thing? Well, um, from a statistical point of view, a statistician would tell you that, that, uh, that in analyzing complex data, bias is inevitable because if you look at a lot of data, a field of data, and you're trying to divide it into categories, let's say, uh, inevitably all possible categories are, are valid against some metric of what good is. And the way you decide on a metric of what good is is by introducing a bias. You basically say, okay, uh, for instance, we're going to say that there's a measure of similarity like nearness in, uh, of data points to one another. And when we say that nearness, we'll say things that are near together, we're going to say are, 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 are similar and should be you know, placed in the same category. And things that are further away shouldn't be. So that's, but that is a bias. It's a bias based on a distance metric. So a, a bias is inevitable. The uh, point when we apply algorithms to human beings and we start making significant judgments that affect their lives is we're going to have to make biased decisions in the selection of data, in the design of algorithms, the design of how the data is represented. And those will be biases, inevitably. But the problem is, is are they biases that are going to uh, align with uh, traditional injustices and intolerances? And oftentimes they accidentally do. 
So my perspective on bias is bias is inevitable. It's it's a matter of how we we uh, we design algorithms in order to control that bias. But I'm going to say one more thing about that because I don't want people to feel that it's just a, a design problem. The fact if if you think about the law, the law we call it a code, right? The way we call code for AI, a code. Uh, we we design the code of law to to uh, basically try to have a guideline for justice. But we place justice, and always traditionally have placed justice in the hands of judges and juries, in the hands of human beings, because there's the realization that the code is a blunt instrument, right? So you have to have the final decisions about complicated human decisions like what is just and what is fair. You put those in the hands of people because people have, can handle subtleties of value. So, so effectively, uh, this, we have the same situation with code now, with, with code of algorithms, that ultimately uh, it can be designed better, but there are complex decisions about fairness and justice that I think we need to realize, as the, as the first lawmakers did, that we need to place in the hands of, of, of people. So it sounds to me that you're saying that AI is a good tool to utilize, but not in isolation. So this uh, vision and dream of, you know, having AI systems work autonomously in all aspects of our life is perhaps a pipe dream? I think it is a bit of a pipe dream. As I said, I, I think of it as pseudo-intelligence. And, and the thing about humans is we have some very complex mechanisms that we use to to make decisions that are both internalized in the individual and are social mechanisms. And they're mechanisms that we have evolved for a very long time and that can continuously adapt as things change. And they have this extraordinary power. Um, bringing algorithms in as a part of that, fine. Making algorithms, uh, thinking of them as, as superior in their ability to make uh, coded judgments, uh, I think is, is, um, is, a, is a mistake. And I don't think the, the idea that we're going to have better justice through, through algorithms is, is, is a mistake. Okay. So before we move on from, from, from this section, I wanted to ask you to perhaps talk about what you see as the difference between bias and prejudice. Yeah. Uh, bias, as I said, is this inevitable choice we have to make of, of how we're going to to, to, to basically make our decisions. Prejudice is to judge before, to, ju to, to prejudge uh, before you have all the evidence. So ultimately, prejudice is about generalization. That's, that's the same difference. You make a generalization by looking at past evidence, and then when you look at new cases, you don't have to look at everything. You can generalize about them. Uh, generalization is a, uh, a vital aspect of human decision-making. We do generalize. However, it's also a dangerous aspect of human decision-making because we can generalize on, on simplifying features of people, for instance, race and gender, and we can, uh, we can unfortunately align those with what is socially convenient or, or, or promotes the, the status quo. And we can do that in algorithm design as well. So, so our generalizations, our prejudices, uh, inevitably can, can uh, fall into our algorithmic design sometimes and in, rarely intentionally, uh, usually accidentally. And uh, those, as we have algorithms that are blunt instruments that are acting more and more in our lives, that becomes a more problematic thing.
So can we say that this is truly accidental, right? Because, you know, in my mind, when you look at, you know, tech firms, tech uh, the tech culture, I've heard of programming as an example, it tends to be certain kind of people who work mainly within, you know, AI research, innovation of that type. Um, so could the argument be that, you know, the industry is lazy, right? You yeah. know, they're not going above and beyond to actually weed out the risk of introducing prejudices into their AI products. Well, you know, society exists in a, in a set of very tightly coupled feedback loops. And uh, for instance, uh, and I always bring this up because I think it's a fact that it's so shocking and, and, and most people don't realize Back in the late 80s, when I started working in AI, uh, the profession that was most rapidly growing towards uh, parity for women and men was computer science. Computer science degrees were almost at parity for men and women in the late 1980s. Uh, now, uh, in, 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 after, the found, after the internet came in and uh, computing became much more important to everyone's lives very rapidly, now the percentage of women who graduate computer science degrees is 18%. So there's been this dramatic fall off from what was near parity. Now that's a part of a social feedback loop. Women, I think, have been made unwelcome in that environment. And, and it, it feeds back on itself and it becomes a profession that people think of as programmers and therefore only men enter it. Now, do I think that uh, the, the men who are programming algorithms are uh, inherently misogynist? Well, I'd say probably no more so than the rest of society, which ain't good, right? That, that, that's what I would say. And uh, are, are they racist? Probably no more so than the rest of society, which isn't good. And, and the thing is, is you get this feedback loop, effectively, now it's got algorithms in it. So you, you effectively have the effects of uh, unconscious biasing going on into algorithms because the people who have their unconscious biases are from a particular group. Right. So 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 the thing is, do I think that there are, are racist and, and misogynist uh, programmers of the of the most vehement kind uh, in Silicon Valley? There are probably some. Do I think that there are racist and misogynist programmers in Silicon Valley of the day to day kind that is unfortunately a part of the society we live in? Absolutely. And the the lack of represent even representation in that field is absolutely uh, a a huge social problem because we're building the informational infrastructure of our world now, and that enhances and speeds up and intensifies those social feedback loops. Yeah. So, so what do you think can be done uh, to to basically disrupt that pattern? Because it seemed to be ingrained in the industry. And I'm sure there are examples of companies who are introducing different initiatives to, to make that shift. Right. I think, I think all the tech, not tech companies are, are, are trying. I think it's, uh, it's difficult. I, I'll, I'll present a fact that I hope ha helps. I'm, I'm currently working with a startup called Hey Mirza that's trying to solve the gender pay gap problem with, with some enabling technology for women and, uh, and future parents. And one of the things we've observed is um, if you look at the studies, the key aspect to try to get uh, uh, women able to have their children and not suffer a huge uh, motherhood penalty in their, in their career advancement 
It's job flexibility. Now, if you look at science, technology, engineering, mathematics, you actually see that they have very high job flexibility. And therefore, they actually do have, they're closing the gender pay gap actually faster than other, uh, other professions like business, law, healthcare, etc. It's closing faster. But you have to correct for the fact that women are underrepresented in that group as they are in, right. in as they aren't so much in healthcare or law, for instance. So, so the thing is, is it's a, it's a, it's a area ripe for uh, a better life for women. And if we can just get that through to young people so that they make the career decisions, so, so we can try to break that feedback loop to basically say, this is a good place for you. This is a place where you're wanted. This is a place where the lifestyle that you want will be better. So I think there's, there's opportunity, but it's all about informing people and trying to break those social feedback loops. Yeah. And, and I, I guess it's about getting the message out there that AI isn't a preserve of a few, but one that everybody, regardless of, you know, gender, race, ethnicity, whatever, can um, actually engage with. And, and the fact that it's actually important for the future of the human race. Because, as you say, the future of our technology infrastructure globally is being formed yeah. and everybody ha has a, um, a role to play in it. Yeah. Okay. So, so we, underst we understand now why bias is needed with, you know, looking at big data, how you, how you need to put structure yeah. in to be able to analyze data. We understand how prejudice can sip in you know, yeah. into how we frame the questions when we're looking at research with data. Exactly. So from that, what are the risks and perhaps opportunities uh, that there are in, in AI in, in trying to then build a fairer world, trying to minimize, you know, biases, prejudices. We've talked about inclusion, diversity, okay. but, but what risks are there and, and can we highlight other opportunities? Well, you know, I, 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 I wanted to get this anecdote in and I'm, I'm going to throw it in is, is the, the risk of traditional prejudices seeping in are, are massive and they cause the kinds of day-to-day uh, -day, uh, drag on people's lives that, that, uh, that people who are from underrepresented groups have dealt with their whole lives, but now it's from, from machines rather than people. And uh, there's this great example of, um, uh, that's extremely simple that illustrates how, how uh, traditional prejudice can creep in. Um, if you go and try to get a passport in the UK, or pretty much internationally anywhere, you go online and what they make you do is fill out a form online and then you upload a picture and uh, the picture is checked to see if it's a valid passport photo. And there's weird things about passport photos. Now you can't wear glasses, you can't smile, you can't open your mouth and your eyes have to be open. There's this two stories, one in the UK and one in Australia. And the one in the UK is uh, a guy uploaded his passport and it came back and it said, um, your mouth's open. And, uh, and he said, no, it's not, you know, and he uploaded the photo again, Morale's open. He, he got in this loop and the, and the machine wouldn't let him upload the photo. Well, it turns out he's, he's a, he was a, a gentleman of African descent and, uh, and it was that he has large lips because if you know how algorithms work, what they do is they divide faces into big blobs of features. And if you, if you look at it through the eyes that you know the way the algorithm's looking at it, what it had done is it turned his lower lip blob. It was thinking of it as a tongue, 
and he had a he had a goatee beard around it, and he was thinking of that as the 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 black area around the tongue. And because of his complexion and the shape of his face, his photo would not be accepted. Then, by the way, he found out it was extremely hard to get any human help with this problem, which is the key thing. Is right. There are two things here. No way to get to a human is it becomes a more inconvenient problem. Now, the thing I wanted, the reason I wanted to mention this is. Yeah, I, when I went to Australia and did a book tour, somebody came up and said, oh, that happened in Australia, except it was an Asian guy, and the algorithm kept saying his eyes were closed. So can you think of anything that's more stereotypically aligned with traditional prejudices? So two things about that. Why did it happen? Well, why it happened probably was that the algorithms, the data they trained the algorithm on, the facial recognition data, was primarily Caucasian. Second problem there is that there are always, that problem can be solved. This image recognition problem can be solved for passport photos. But the problem is there's always going to, always going to be some minority of people with unusual faces. And those people with, say, a facial deformity, uh, those people are always going to have problems. If they can't get to a human being, they're going to suffer this minority effect. So there's always somebody who's going to get the minority effect. And because of that, you got to have the human being in the loop. So, so effectively, uh, I guess the, the point of that anecdote is to say the way that the prejudice can sl slip in is uh, through where the data comes from, how the data is represented, just blobs and textures of people's faces, which we don't want to tie to really important decisions like uh, recognizing whether someone's telling the truth or not. We certainly don't want to do that because that will be inherently bad. And, and, um, and then the problem that when the problem needs a human treatment, we're shutting the human out, largely for economic reasons. I hope that wasn't too much of a digression, but I, I wanted to make sure I got that in. Well, it's important. I, I think it's important. And, you know, one messaging that is coming through loud and clear is that, you know, AI isn't something that we should expect to work all on its own. And we can't, uh, you know, divorce it from, you know, the need to have human oversight. And I think that's a, an important learning because in the sexiness of AI, you know, we're thinking of this, you know, utopian future where perhaps we don't even have to get out of bed or talk. We just have to think it and the machines do it for us. So there's a huge gap. And I think as the industry is evolving, we, we have to be really clear on, you know, what is truly achievable. I also want to touch on the point of, you know, the minority group, so to speak, because I guess with any set of data, there are always going to be outliers. And within AI research, you know, there doesn't seem to be uh, enough interest or desire to really understand why certain group of data are outliers. And the focus is really on going with the majority in terms of what the data set is, building in efficiency and speed to get into a certain pro uh, product. And which is where the challenge is for us as humans, because you rush to achieve something, but you leave so many people behind. Um, can we talk about the importance of the outliers, perhaps, that you know, AI scientists are ignoring? Yeah, I think there are two really important things about that. One is, is as I said in that example, uh, the, the unusual person, the, the person who doesn't fit whatever biases were used to design the algorithm and make it effective and efficient and develop it quickly, they're always going to be the people who, who uh, are uh, treated differently, probably with less efficiency. 
Uh, and that that's the day-to-day drag that brings minority groups down. You know, you, you put that in every system and then everybody's life becomes uh, impeded uh, relative to other people. So that's one thing about outliers that's really important. The other thing about outliers in, in say, the cognitive space, like outlier ideas, um, is that outliers are the most important thing, right? The, the, the different idea, and perhaps even the different person, they're the person from, from whence innovation comes, and they're the idea from which innovation comes. So if we have a statistical world where it's, it's geared towards the average and the expected and the thing around which biases were designed, then the, you're going to have the effect of, uh, of excluding those things that will really dramatically advance things. So, so uh, a statistically average world, a world where algorithms are doing that kind of thing, is a world of less adaptation and innovation. Can you explain what outliers mean and you know, what kind of people uh, you know, fall within that category? Uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting to me that in a time where generalization and simplification and quantification of people is going on so rampantly uh, with, with algorithms in our lives, that we're simultaneously in an era where, uh, where intersectionality and, and difference is something that socially we're trying to understand better uh, and that those two things are in such stark contrast. An outlier, when you have a system of uh, quantification of categorization and you place people into categories, for instance, uh, uh, women and men, or where, where you have... Uh, uh, categories that are quantifiers like uh, the IQ test, effectively any such uh, quantification or categorization won't fit some individuals. There'll be something that is too near the boundary or something that isn't described well by the quantification. Uh, for instance, uh, non-binary people uh, in, in, in the case of gender, in the case of race, uh, we have so many people today that the, the completely uh, crude racial categories don't fit and people who, who don't want to define themselves in those categories. In any system like that, such people are outliers. Mm, thank you. So with trying to round off the conversation then with, you know, AI, bias, prejudice, you know, my, my final question really is taking it back to the individual because ultimately the individual form the community that forms the society and, you know, that feeds into the way we're building AI and our tech infrastructure. So what can individuals be doing, thinking about uh, around AI that we use and, and also how that might be impacting bias. So how we use AI, what can we do differently to, to really limit or, or stop the growth or, of prejudice in our society and, and this polarization that we see? Okay, well, well the first thing I think, um, I think there's an p- opportunity here for a, for a revolution in the way that we, we look at social, social science and, and look at each other and look at humanity. Um, I think it's very important that people realize that, that artificial intelligence is profoundly different from human intelligence and making that realization that we're uh, subtle uh, social creatures that have uh, feelings and emotions that are part of our reasoning process and an adaptive part of our reasoning process and that that's unique to what we are as human beings 
uh, is, is a, a revelation about the importance of humanity. Also, what it reveals, if you look at the history of AI and the history of things like the IQ test and, uh, and, um, and other quantitative social science methods, you find that there's always been a close alignment between quantifying people and racism, uh, sexism, uh, other kinds of intolerance. So, so the thing is, is that algorithms expose that directly because things like simplifying the, fe- the features of a person's face and then making decisions about them, that's the, that's the soul of prejudice, right? That's the soul of prejudice. Now we're doing it with machines and we can begin to see quantifying people has always been problematic. And while it can be useful in limited ways, it always has to have the human element reintroduced. And if you think about it, the reason I say this is a, a possible revolution, it's recentering the fundamental importance of, of human nature in social science and the idea that we are all individuals. And while we can reason about us in simplifying, generalizing ways, and that can be useful, that always carries dangers of, of, of assigning someone in a category based on something as trivial as the color of their skin. Uh, or, 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 or treating someone as if their, their ideas are, are less important because their sexual preferences or their, their bodies are different in some trivial way like their genitalia. You know, th- those trivialities being associated with the profound nature of human cognition uh, are the kind of dumb stuff that algorithms do. We need to realize that's dumb stuff, and this is our opportunity to do so. So with um, Rob's interview, I liked the fact that we started by from the definition of AI and how that in itself can be misleading. You know, definition of artificial, uh, artificial, uh, and he, yeah. he cited the example of artificial light and artificial flowers, and then the definition of uh, intelligence itself and how that has its own historical baggage uh, and how we brought those two together in AI uh, and, and how we are now starting to see the challenges around that. What, what was your thoughts on that, Kevin? We, well, you can, I could, yeah, you can really tell he's been battling with the definition for artificial intelligence for the 30 years that he's been he's been working in, mm. in this field. So, and he'll probably give us a different one in, in a few years' time. It's always changing, you know, based on, on, on what's happening now. But yeah, I really did like that. What's artificial? And I, I like that he brought up, um, he was calling it pseudo-intelligence. Yes. Um, and, you know, similarly to artificial flowers, it, it's imitating, uh, but can't replace us. Right, so it'll now, so an artificial flower will not, you know, it can stand in for for a real flower, but it's not the same thing. No, no, it doesn't have the smell. It doesn't have the texture. It it, it fools you at first glance that you know, look at me, I'm pretty and very colorful, but the 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 pleasure you get from real flowers is lacking when you take a closer look or you you go closer to to smell it. Right, so. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's a good and important analogy because, again, a recurring theme as we've been going through, you know, recording all of the podcasts is that we cannot be replaced as humans because we are too complex 
to be replaced by a system uh, and we certainly can't do it at the moment. So whilst there's a lot of hype and excitement around AI, you know, as we are building systems, uh, it is important that there's a human element uh, in that system because an AI system that has been applied without uh, human oversight is what is leading to challenges and problems, right? Yeah, of course, of course. Hey, I, our listeners don't have the uh, viewpoint I have, but I, I could see a bunch of flowers behind you there. Are they? Uh, <laughs> yes. Are they, no, they are, are they real, real flowers, or artificial? Real flowers, and uh, they smell great. Awesome. <laughs> we, you know, when you when you see when you see a bunch of flowers like that, you go, oh, when you go up to smell them, and if you find out that they're artificial, you go, oh god, you're so disappointed, aren't you? <laughs> yes, very you disappointed. Go, oh, but it's a good it's a good replica, but oh, I don't. Not the same, not the same. Yeah, another thing that I, and I, I must say, I learned uh, from the interview with Rob is understanding how data is handled for AI. And the biggest learning for me is the fact that we have to simplify data. And there's a great deal of generalization going on and simplification to be able to um, apply or create algorithms. So very simple rules. And when you then apply it to a group of people and the fact that we are complex, we run into issues where we then have outliers, you know, people who fall outside of the boundaries of that simplification. Yeah. Uh, and he really gave an insight into how an AI mind works, mm -hmm. right? So, and it tries to make sense of a very complex thing, a complex world, and try to simplify that as much as possible so we can make a decision really quickly. Yeah, and that's that's the root of prejudice, right? So it's inheriting our the way that we think. We like humans are trying to make sense of a complex world very very quickly, because mm -hmm. um, we just don't we don't have the, the the brain capacity to to think of everything all around us all the time so we think in shapes and textures just like ai does blobs shapes textures features of a person's face for instance yes. he talked about that um he's some, he's got so many stories i mean that that, that story about the, the, the those individuals who struggle to get their passport photo approved um, and i'm sure there's many more Sure yeah, indeed. And, you know, at that point you've made, you know, sometimes you see examples on the Internet where you do have uh, text jumbled up, but your brain fills in the gap. So words may be spelt incorrectly, but we, we read through still making sense of the of the text. And and that's an, a perfect example of the way our brain works in that, you know, we 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 try and analyze very quickly, making assumptions and simplifying. And, and you know, you could give a jumbled up paragraph to two people and it can easily take two meanings away from it, depending on how their brain works. Right. Yeah, like like the um, those visual uh, optical illusions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where it's the same color, the, the chess piece or whatever is the same color, um, but your brain fills in the gaps. Yeah, yes. and it's it's different. So yeah, there, there's all of these little kind of tricks that your mind are, is playing on you. Um, yeah. What else do you talk about? So uh, what I like to the, the biases unconscious or not um, are part of each group that we're part of, right? So. And the vast majority of developers, he was saying he believes, are not consciously embedding their biases in the programming. Um, 
but it just becomes more apparent to us because when a product is developed locally and then released globally, uh, you know, there's a lot of different groups around the world that will be able to see, okay, well, this doesn't work for X, Y, and Z. Um, you've excluded me. You haven't thought about me. Well, because I'm not you. So, yeah, it, it's another shout out for more diversity in development, I feel. Yes, definitely. And it's definitely to that point of um, that uh, those outliers and the, the, there will always be a minority group of some sort who, are, who haven't been included in, in, the, in the main, I guess, of or developing um, um, uh, an AI product. So, so the importance there is is to ensure that we we listen and, and we understand how those groups can be brought in. So, so thinking about where the data has come from is very important, and how the data is, is representative uh, also is very important. And most importantly, not shutting the humans away because you know that example of the passport photograph, um, you know, is a good one in that you can have problems utilizing the system to to get your picture taken correctly but if you are still having challenges the ability to actually speak to a human uh, is important and if the human isn't there then that problem is further exacerbated and your frustration increased so again ai systems shouldn't really be used in isolation without that human element absolutely i mean it, it, it's human plus machine is going to have a better outcome. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, and, and of course, that will help with, with some of the teething problems of, of AI. That's, that's, that's for sure. Uh, like, for instance, Rob said that algorithm thinks it's working if only the minority is affected, yes. right? Yeah. So if the, whole, if the majority are, are everything's working fine, well, you know what, I'm, I'm doing it right. Perhaps there's a way to improve on that. I think that's yes. just the generation of AI that, we ha that we're dealing with right now. Mm -hmm. Um. He's he's a quite rebellious character. I found you know he's he's a, he's a very interesting character. He talked about revolution and there's an opportunity for revolution, um, and that algorithms are exposing prejudice. Yeah. So and quantifying has always been problematic, always. Um, you know, and 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 this is the kind of dumb stuff that AI does, and we <laughs> and we need to realize that it is dumb stuff. So um, that's the opportunity for revolution to to rethink how we think. So I really like that point from him. Yeah, and there was a, a, a positive note as we were coming to the end of the podcast, uh, the interview with him, uh, and is, you know, looking into the future and how we can use AI to be better humans and, and, and be fairer to, to it in, yeah. in what we do. All right, so uh, over this, this episode, we, we've talked with Angela and Rob. I think at the start of the episode, it was more, you know, what makes... Humans biased. What's the reason for it? How can we kind of identify our own unconscious biases? And then, then we talked to Rob, who you know was developed AI tools um, for for twenty thirty years, um, and and how that some of those prejudices are are seeping into to development. And what we can do about that? So I you know I've learned a whole lot on this one. I've really enjoyed both of those uh, guests, um, and I, I certainly hope to to have them on the show again. Yes, uh, a lot of learning definitely from the social aspect to, to the very technical aspect from Rob. 
Um, and this is the kind of conversations we want people to be having, you know, especially if you are utilizing AI in your day-to-day -day, uh, work or at home, is to really be thinking about, you know, okay, you know, how has this been developed? Who is this left out? What are the questions I should be asking? Is this the right product for me? And, and if you're working and developing products, you know, don't just sit in your silo. Think about, you know, your life experience that you're bringing into your work and is that representative? If not, then seek to get diverse input into what you're developing and doing because that is the only way we can start to get rid of that prejudice within AI system. So we understand that an element of bias is needed uh, definitely in, in science and it isn't always a bad thing but ensuring that diversity and representation is a, is, goes a long way in ensuring that we impact more people positively. Yeah, and you know, for, for any AI developers who, you know, of course, you don't want to have too many restrictions on, on how to create new technology, you know, adding a lot of policy in to say, you, you must have, you know, 20 people working on development team, You'd, we'd never create anything. Um, so, you know, if it, if it is a, an agile enough team and you have developed something, maybe just, you know, have it tested by external consultants, you know, people who are experts in that field, have them check it out and run a kind of an ethical uh, a check across the, the, the AI and AI health check or something like that. So, you know, I'm sure I'm sure there's lots of uh, services like that on, on the market. Definitely. It will, it will avoid any uh, embarrassing uh, media scandals in the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would definitely ensure, ensure a successful launch because you don't want to pull your effort into launching a program uh, uh, or product only to take it off the shelf because a group screams loudly to say, uh, you didn't think of us. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and these, are, these are the stories that everybody, these are like war stories now in the they AI uh, um, uh, circuit. So everything is about, you know, if you, if you created a racist hand drawer, everybody's going to know about that. And yes. guess what? Your business is going to have to, you know, wrap up, unfortunately. Um, we, we don't have to go through all the different stories, but we know them and they echo for years. Yes, they do. There's one in particular that kids doing the round. I know it's one of your favorites, but we're not going to talk about it, Kevin. No, we're not allowed <laughs> to mention the A word uh, <laughs> on this show again. <laughs> All, right. all, all in all, I think the 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 uh, podcast episode on bias is a really good one. Really does give um, the listener food for thought, you know, and it's 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 a good one to start with because we find that theme running across all of the topic topic areas we 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 touch on. Um, so yeah, I'm very excited to to get people stuck in. Yeah, and, and this is not the end of the bias discussion. It's just the beginning. Yes. Um, you know, it, it's going to be on, on a lot of episodes. Um, so, yeah, good episode. Thanks for joining us on our first ever episode of the We and AI podcast. We're really excited to be setting off on this journey. Uh, we've got loads more episodes coming up on topics ranging from jobs, healthcare, and the government. So if you'd like to join us for our next discussion, uh, make sure to click subscribe. And you could uh, even leave us a review. Uh, it's really helpful for helping more people find us.
You can also tweet us at We and AI Podcast. So thanks again for joining us, and we hope to see you soon. Bye. Bye.